Hello, welcome to another episode of Papa Bear Hikes. Recently, we've done a few episodes on Scotland, and it sounds like such a cool place to visit. And it's just coincidental that within a two or three week period, we had an episode about hiking and backpacking in Scotland and canoeing in Scotland. Well, we're heading into October. And I thought this might be a good opportunity to talk about the things that go bump in the night or swish in the night, as this might be, as we talk about the Loch Ness Monster. Today's guest has written 1,500 articles in magazines and newspapers and about 60 nonfiction nonfiction books. Her favorite topics are things that we can't yet explain, but hope to do someday. Things like the Loch Ness Monster, aliens, Bigfoot, and ghosts. Kelly (laughs) Kelly Menard... Welcome to Papa Hikes. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So, Kelly, uh, you know, you, you have a lot of interest here in the, the paranorma. So let's start with the Loch Ness Monster, because that's what we want our topic to be today. When or how did your interest in the Loch Ness, Loch Ness Mar- Monster start? When I was a kid, many, many years ago, I used to sit in my father's lap. Now, my father was a computer science physicist. He was a hard science guy. But we would watch documentaries on Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster and mysterious things. And I would say, Dad, could the Loch Ness Monster be real? Now, my dad could have shut me down, but he didn't. He said, I guess we'll need to find more evidence to be sure. And that opened the door to me to be curious about anything, not just what other people considered possible, but things that might be seen as impossible too. And the Loch Ness Monster was always one of my favorites. I mean, who couldn't be intrigued by a a plesiosaur that lives in a a Scottish lake? Yeah, I grew up in a town that uh, rumor had it we had the second largest concentration of people from Scotland than anywhere else in the United States. So I grew up hearing the stories of the Loch Ness Monster. It was kind of uh, a folktale or uh, something we heard about constantly growing up. Like I said, because of the the nature of the culture I grew up in, a lot of people that had, uh, there were a lot of first generation, a lot of people, a lot of my friends' parents or grandparents had come over here from Scotland. Uh, So it's interesting, you know, my interest started to grow from that. It's interesting though that, that, okay, we hear about this, but yeah, I mean, Let's look at this from a scientific perspective, right? Yeah. You can't just say it's not there. Can we prove it's not there? Uh, there's certainly been people who have claimed to have seen it, and, and not all that long ago, right? No. I mean, the sightings are um, – they span a huge group of time, a, a long, long timeline. And we have to remember when we consider the Loch Ness Monster how big the Loch Ness is, that it's the largest – uh, body of fresh water in the United Kingdom. It's huge. Um, what is it? 22 square miles. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's a big, big area. We're not talking about a little lake. We're talking about something that resembles almost an ocean. And so there is a lot of wildlife that lives in the Loch Ness. Is there a plesiosaur? Probably not because it's cold water and reptiles require warm water to digest their food. But that doesn't discount other kinds of mysterious creatures living in the Loch Ness. Because I read about the plesiosaur theory, right? That it's possible that it could have become landlocked is the, um, you know, from glacier melting and flooding, but right. not likely for the reason you stated. 
you know, it's not right. an if environment that, just in cruisers. If we had a reptile living in Loch Ness, it would have to get out of the water to warm every time it ate. And even if it only ate once a week or every once a month, it would still have to emerge from that cold water, cold, deep water, because it was cut by glaciers, remember? And it would have to bask in the sun in order to kick in its metabolism to digest its food. I had a four-foot-long rock iguana, and I had to provide internal light because he couldn't get outside to the sun. If I hadn't, the food would have rotted in his stomach and he would have died. So reptiles require that to digest their um, food. So if we had a, a reptile, a huge, magnificent reptile in Loch Ness, we would see it often because there wouldn't be one. There'd be a whole colony. There'd be groups. You have to have a boy and a girl to make babies. So we would have more than one individual. So Probably not a plesiosaur, but it's not a new creature, you know. It's been talked about since second, third century in Scotland. Yeah, that's something I had come across as I was preparing the other night for this interview is that, you know, there's been accounts that I think one of them I read goes back to 500 something BC. Well, even before that, there was a group of people called the Picts, and they carved in stone their stories and they carved animals and flowers and fish. They were related to this, to the, um, Celtics, but they were called the Picts, P-I-C-T-S, and they carved in stone the Pictish beast. Now, scientists say it's probably a dolphin, and dolphins do find their way occasionally into the Loch Ness, and then they go back out. They're small enough to make passage through the, the from the ocean to the Loch Ness. Um, but a lot of people consider the Pictish beast the Loch Ness monster, and that was in the third century which is pretty cool if you think that the Loch Ness Monster story goes that far back. Now, I think what you're talking about is in 565, and that's St. Columba. Supposedly, a man was mauled in Loch Ness, just killed, bloody, horrible incident. And so this Christian guy, St. Columba, he went to the lake and he cast the Loch Ness Monster out, and he commanded him in the name of Christ never to eat a person again. And supposedly, it never did. So that's another really old story, 565, and an amazing story. Now, is it true? I don't know. The people that tell it say it is. Mm -hmm. right. But we just don't know, do we? Right. Yeah. Now, these stories, these sightings didn't stop with St. No. Columba. They, I mean, I saw a story, a guy, uh, it was actually a documentary I'd watched where a gentleman had he had said he had seen a Loch Ness monster in 1972 and 30 or 40 years later, he was still out there trying to find it again. And they had brought in a group of scientists with all sorts of modern sonar equipment and cameras to go down to the bottom of the lake and seek out evidence. So this, you know, like I said, this is spanning not years, decades, you know, this is a long period of time we're talking here. <laughs> Well, it was interesting because some of the uh, research that I did on the Loch Ness Monster said that the people of the United Kingdom are especially um, prone to wanting to believe these kind of stories because of the folklore that's been around for centuries. You know, the dragons and the knights slaying the dragons. Even if you get a little more recent, 1823, when Mary Awning, she was an amateur paleontologist, and she found the very first plesiosaur on um, the Regis region of the United Kingdom. They now call it the Jurassic Coast because of what she did. And that plesiosaur locked that a mystery, that magic of a long necked creature into the minds of the people in the United Kingdom, even back in 1823. 
So um, it's kind of steeped in the culture, the possibility of things unknown, the possibility of things that we don't quite understand. So that makes it a little easier to believe. I don't think America's any different. I mean, we came from the British col- people, the colonies. So we have that same history here in the United States. So it's kind of interesting that it's been around that long. Um, there have been all kinds of accounts on the sea monsters in the oceans. That was documented in the newspapers of the day. Um, they're called huge fish. They're called um, creatures that are attacking whales. There is even some speculation that the creature attacking the whales was a male whale and that his um, <clears throat> procreative device was actually what they saw and thought was a sea monster. Hmm. So many remarkable stories about these water-bound creatures. And the Loch Ness is just one that keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. I hope it's real, mm-hmm. but I don't have a whole lot of evidence that it is. Right. And, it's, that means, and go pe- ahead. people have been looking, you know, looking for evidence. And um, you know, it's not for lack of effort. Um, no, you know, I don't know much about um, the culture of people who, you know following the Loch Ness not monster. I, I've interviewed uh, recently a couple of guys who follow Bigfoot and who, who are um, you know out searching for Bigfoot and trying to help people understand Bigfoot. Are there people out there that are you know regularly visiting the region to? see if they can to try to have a sighting. And I know you do research and there's people like you who are, you know, they're scientists that are constantly researching this, but is there a culture of people that are going to the region and, and, and hoping for a Loch Ness sighting? Well, there, there are, there are people that, I mean, tourism in Scotland is huge. They say $41 million a year comes into Scotland purely of Loch Ness monster tourism. So there are all kinds of people that go hoping someday that's on my bucket list. I want to go and look myself just because I want to believe it's true. But if you want to look for the guy that's really spent the most serious scientific time studying the Loch Ness Monster, that's a guy named Adrian Schein. And Adrian Schein is a naturalist. He's not a crazy guy. He's a real scientist. And he was hired to do an analysis of Loch Ness to see whether or not the Loch Ness Monster could be possible. And he's been searching starting in the 1980s is when they hired him to do the work. And he's been searching ever since. He's this magnificent looking older guy with a full white beard. He's just a remarkable person. And he runs um, something in um, Scotland in Loch Ness called the Loch Ness Project. So he has a, a museum that's purely scientifically based. All the evidence they have or haven't found. Um, that's the guy that if I was going to do an interview, if I wanted to know somebody who would give me the information that the scientific guys like Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum in the Bigfoot world, he's the guy I'd go to now for Bigfoot. If I could interview Adrian Schein, that's who I'd go to for the Loch Ness Monster. But there have been plenty of people that have tried to do scientific analysis, sonar detection. Um, my problem is, is if you know wild animals at all, if you studied wildlife, they like to avoid people. Because people have a tendency to kill things. So if there is a Bigfoot, he's not looking to commune with us unless he's a juvenile Bigfoot. Um, And if you have a Loch Ness Monster, if I see a sonar sweep coming, I go to my hiding place. Because that's a disruption in my normal daily activity. So just because they haven't found it in sonar doesn't mean there's not something there. 
um, it means that it has the sense to get lost when there's commotion in its habitat, which most animals would do. If you go into the woods, any kind of woods, I live in the Pacific Northwest. If I go into the woods and set up my campfire in my tent, unless I have really good food that's really easy to get, all the bears and the wolves and the raccoons and the skunks, they're going to they're gonna try to avoid me because that's just the way it is in the, in the um, circle of life, the predator scheme. Um, so just because you don't find it on sonar when they have sweeps and they've done dozens of sweeps, that doesn't mean it's not there. However, they've also done DNA analysis, which I found super duper interesting. We'll be back after a quick break. You ever think about what might be in the water you're drinking every time you fill up your water bottles while you're in the outdoors? I try not to, and I really don't because I use Sawyer water filters. Sawyer filter technology, because of their high standards, Every filter is individually tested three times through the process. I've been using the permethrin product for years now to protect me from, well, quite frankly, ticks and the picaridin to keep the flies at bay. Don't let bad water, insects, or a tick bite cut your trip short or even ruin it. Use Sawyer products. Go to your local outdoor retailer and ask for Sawyer products, whether it's a water filter, insect repellent, they'll likely to have it. You can also go to Sawyer's website and read more about these incredible high quality products that they offer those of us who enjoy the outdoors. See, I've gone from being a naysayer to a skeptic, probably just within the past six months to a year. And for this reason, and as, as you mentioned, you know, I hike in areas where I know there's bears. The only time I usually see a bear is when it's, you know, I'll see it's the back of it running away in a hurry. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's it because right instinctively they know to stay away from us uh, yeah unless they've been fed by humans in which case that's our fault right unless they become habituated they do they will go to great measure to stay away from us and even if we leave food out they won't try to you know, most of the time they won't attempt to get that food until we're in the tent or somewhere they yeah. where they feel safe going over and approaching the food and then they take off if you don't confront them generally right all right and that's what's taken me from a naysayer to the skeptic side of this is that you know maybe like in, let's say in the case of bigfoot it's just such a rare creature there's so few of them maybe that explains why there's so few sightings i interviewed a natural park anthropologist her name is kathy strain moskowitz and she's an, a bigfoot expert and she's collected all the native american stories about bigfoot and she did an analysis on all the open um territory and she estimates if you analyze, say, a gorilla's territory, what they need to, for their habitat, she thinks there are about 2,000 Bigfoots in North America based on what they'd need for a habitat. So you're right. That's not very many when you think of the expanse of, of the uh, North American continent. Um, 2,000 is pretty sparse. Right. So, yeah, you, your chances of seeing one are pretty limited. If it's real, I'm with you. I'm leaning towards thinking something might be out there just because I've done research on Bigfoot for about 12 years now. And it's just, you meet one person after another, who's not a crazy guy wearing a foil hat, who's a really serious guy that didn't ever expect to run into Bigfoot. And yet they did. Mm -hmm. And it starts to make you think, could there be something out there? Now the Loch Ness monster, I'm not as sure of because there's not as much physical evidence. We need some physical evidence. We need some bones or some carcass, something we can analyze. But the DNA studies that they did, and it was it was a super interesting study, 
It was fairly recent. Let me find the date. Okay, it was in 2019. Forgive me. And there were some geneticists. They said, well, Adrian Shine, they went to Adrian because he's a science guy. And they said, let's do a DNA study of the lock. Let's take water samples of every animal that lives in or near the Loch Ness will leave DNA behind. Let's get this done. Let's see if there's a reptile in Loch Ness. So they did the DNA study. They took 250 water samples and there was no reptilian DNA at all. There were, I think, three or four that were unidentified. They couldn't figure out what it was, which does leave the door open to an unknown species. But what they found was lots and lots of eels. Now, we've always known that eels live in Loch Ness. But who says there's not a giant, huge eel in Loch Ness? That would still be a very valid sea monster. It might not be a plesiosaur, but just because we find a new animal doesn't mean it's not cool. If we found something bigger than the conger eel, for example, that can be 20 feet long or bigger, that would be a remarkable find in Loch Ness. It doesn't have to be what we expect to be magnificent. It could be something unexpected. It could be a giant eel that has evolved to be very large because it lives in a very large body of water. I find that intriguing. If the Loch Ness Monster turns out to be an eel that's bigger than 20 feet long, I'd be satisfied. That'd be fantastic to me. Right, because that in itself would be pretty cool, right? You've discovered a new species and, uh, you know, wow, okay, so this is explained. And isn't that cool? Like you said, isn't that cool? And is it possible that if this is a giant eel, it's just so elusive and so rare that maybe there's just yeah. such a small population and they're so elusive, they're just not seen that often? Well, and like I say, when something commotion is going on in your habitat, you tend to disappear. Animals just don't want to be around something that's unfamiliar. It's dangerous. And they have the instinct to survive, just like we do. We don't jump off a cliff just because we, we don't jump into the Grand Canyon just because we admire it. <laughs> and I think animals are not stupid. They do tend to avoid things that don't seem familiar, that they don't know what to do with. Um, so maybe they disappear forever. I've been hearing that there are tunnels underwater that animals come to and from the Loch Ness. Now, is that true? I don't know. I would like to see a scientific study, but it's so big. I mean, how could you... I mean, you could miss lots of things, underwater features. And it's so murky that it's difficult to go down there and see anything, even with cameras. So, but that, does, I mean, it's entirely possible that there's some giant thing. I remember the first time I ever saw an oarfish. And those guys are like 20 feet long. They look like they came from another planet. They're a sea monster if ever there was one, but they're real. Mm -hmm. They were depicted on all the uh, 17th, 18th century maps as sea monsters. When they mapped out all the sea monsters, there was the oarfish, this mysterious creature that no one knew what it was. And yet it turned out to be real. Just because it turned out to be real doesn't make it fantastic. The Okapi, you know, the relative to the giraffe in Africa, they called it the African unicorn forever. And it was a mystery. It wasn't real. It was just a myth until it was real. Mm -hmm. And it is remarkable. It's an animal that I'd never seen before. And they're so elusive. They don't like to be seen by anyone. That doesn't mean just because it's real that it's not magnificent. And I feel the same way about whatever's in Loch Ness. Same thing with Champ. That's our uh, North American Lake Champlain. We supposedly have a Loch Ness monster in there. 
and they've done studies on the, the Lake Champlain monster. It's on the coast of Vermont and New York and Quebec. So it's up there in, in Northeast United States mm-hmm. and Canada. So something's in there. They did sound analysis and they found something. It looks like um, echolocation sounds like dolphins and whales make. Hmm. But this is a freshwater body of water, fresh. So did some prehistoric whale or dolphin, did it evolve to the okay in freshwater? And if we find that, isn't that going to be remarkable? It doesn't have to be a plesiosaur to be pretty cool. So to me, when I think of lake monsters, I think of not just the myths, but the possibilities. Yeah. It, it, when you, like I said, when I started allowing myself to think deeper about it, uh, to be more open-minded, yeah, you just, you can't help but s- step back and say, all right, so if it's not exactly the creature that mythology has evolved it into, it's still pretty cool. The finest. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and we're finding new animals every day. Yes. I mean, every every day all over the world, they're finding new frogs and new this and new that. And every new animal you found to me is is a magical discovery. Just like the Highland Gorilla, which was also a cryptid, or the or the coelocanth, which was a prehistoric fish that went extinct, except it didn't. But they didn't know it was still around until they caught one in the 30s. Now they know they're breeding colonies in about three different places around the world. Huge fish. I mean, it's like six feet long. So you'd think you'd see it, but it's a deep water fish. So you don't see it that often. If you happen to net one and it comes up and you say, holy cow, what's this big fish? Then you discover that this fish that went extinct didn't go extinct. Which always opens the door to what else didn't go extinct. That's why the plesiosaurs and the dinosaurs in the Congo, that's why all these mysteries really capture our imaginations. Because wouldn't it be cool if there was something left? And the thing is, there are lots of discoveries we haven't yet made. If we don't send them to extinction with global warming first, who knows what we're going to find? Right. And that's the next question. We know that there's species that. Well, that because of our own behavior, we've pushed to the brink of extinction. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, some of these creatures, for lack of a better way of putting it, could be uh, beings that are on, we're on the brink of extinction, maybe not because of human behavior, but maybe because of just nature. Right. The nature evolved. Right. It's just yeah. taken them longer uh, to become extinct because, you know, because of changes in the environment that they're in. Well, we have epoch after epoch of animals that came and went. Dinosaurs, um, the giant megafauna, you know, the big camels and all those great rhinoceroses. I mean, and they're here and gone. We find their bones, but nothing else. So, of course, we're, who knows what's come and gone that we just didn't notice. Right. Every time I see an alligator, I think that has to be something that evolved out of the dinosaur era and just somehow was able to evolve its way to its, itself to, to survive this long, just in, you well, know. Croc- crocodilians came before dinosaurs, actually. Mm-hmm. They've been around. They came before dinosaurs and they survived after dinosaurs. They are one of the most successful species on the planet Earth. Who knows? They may survive after we're gone. Same thing for sharks. Isn't it remarkable that even though there's this massive asteroid impact that really burned up the majority of the world, that boiled the oceans, And yet the sharks found a way to survive, and so did the alligators. 
And so did the cockroaches and the horseshoe crabs. I mean, there are things that just find a way. It's like Jeffrey, Jeffrey Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Life finds a way, and it really does. I'm not worried that the Earth is going to lose life. I'm worried that our species will go extinct. But something else will step up in our place if we do that. And that's interesting, you know, not to get too far off topic here, but yeah. we talk about you know, global warming and what we can do as humans to stop, to, to slow it down or stop it. But I think we're not really looking at the bigger picture here. The earth's going to be okay. Right. The yeah. earth will be here that the earth's, but the, what the earth may end up doing is finding a way to get rid of us. Well, that's what George Carlin used to say. Right. I remember the comedian, right. George his Carlin. famous bit, the right. Earth's going to shake us off like fleas. Right. We're all screwed. Right. I'm always, yeah. This is a family show, so I'm not going to get it word for word, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. he talks about how, you know, plagues and, and pandemics and, 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 and what have you is possibly a way that Earth's way of saying, okay, you're killing me. I've got to get rid of you. <laughs> well, you know, the dinosaurs would still be here if that asteroid hadn't hit. So who knows if we would have even developed. Life is a weird jumble of possibilities. So that's I, I am hesitant to discount anything as an impossibility, especially things like, like Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster. Some cryptids we know are not real. I mean, the chupacabra, that's the um, goat sucker from Mexico and Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. probably not real. Because it's supposedly a bipedal alien-looking creature with fangs that drains the blood out of goats and chickens and livestock. Well, they say it drains the blood, but really, if you're a wolf and you get interrupted when you're killing a chicken, it's going to bleed out into the dirt. Mm -hmm. And the dirt's not going to show that blood. Mm -hmm. So you're going to think, ah, something drained my chickens. And really, it was just a wolf who got interrupted and then the chicken bled to death. Probably not real. Mm -hmm. But there are those, like the Loch Ness Monster, or like Bigfoot, who do seem to have some credibility, who do seem to have some people that are serious-minded people that are trying to consider what it might be. And again, like I say, just because it may turn out to be something different than we expect, different than the stories, doesn't mean it's not going to be pretty cool. So I love these things. I think doing the research. Like when I was doing the research of Loch Ness Monster, it was so funny because there was a, a movie and it was called The Re True Life or Real Life of Sherlock Holmes. And it was Billy Wilder, who was an old Hollywood guy. Mm -hmm. He made the movie in 1969. It came out in 1970. And in the plot line, Sherlock Holmes was, there was a, um, Queen Victoria had had a, top secret submarine made and it looked like the Loch Ness monster. So that was the sightings. A lot of people were seeing Queen Victoria's, you know, war machine. So Billy Wilder actually made the war machine. He made the Loch Ness monster and it was in the lake and it had two humps to make it float, but he didn't like the two humps. Billy Wilder, the guy making mm -hmm. the film. So he said, get rid of the humps. Well, it sunk <laughs> and they recovered it. Believe it or not, in 2016, using the same sonar, Adrian Shine was involved, using the same sonar they used to look for the Loch Ness Monster. They found this very cool movie prop in 2016 that was the Loch Ness Monster shape. And the sonar pictures are terrific. I mean, you can only imagine what Adrian Shine thought. Oh, if only it was really Nessie <laughs> instead of a movie prop. But it's it's pretty remarkable, the reach 
that the Loch Ness Monster has had, from that to The Water Horse, which was a kid's movie, which makes kids far more compassionate about the life forms that might be in any environment. Again, that was a World War I story. They were trying to kill the Loch Ness Monster. And the kids learned, maybe we shouldn't kill everything we don't understand. Maybe that's not the best approach. So there are so many ways that these stories sort of enrich our culture. Um, and I and I love them, whether they turn out to be true or not. Right. And you know, going back to the scientific side of it, you really have to just look at this you know, as, some, as a layman and just kind of applying what I know about evolution is, you know, like you said, we've got crocodiles and horseshoe crabs and, and other life forms that you know, have, or maybe just been more resilient or just slower to evolve or become as, extinct. Maybe that's what Loch, Loch Ness monster is. It's just, you know, maybe there's, you know, like I said, I, there, there's, we don't have the explanation, but it doesn't mean one doesn't exist. We just haven't found it yet. Well, it's like I said, you know, so reptiles can survive in cold water, but it could easily be a marine mammal that evolved to do fine in fresh water. It could be a sea lion, a pinniped. It could be, you know, a whale or a dolphin of some kind, just like in Lake, Lake Champlain. Something is sonar clicking in that lake. It's been documented. That's a scientist who did the analysis of the sounds in the lake. And the only one she couldn't connect with a, a known animal was that sonar clicking. Well, you can't deny something's making that sound. So something is in Lake Champlain, something mysterious. Is it a monster monster? Is any animal a monster? No. Even the Komodo dragon, it's a ferocious animal that can eat you if you're too slow, that can bite you and wait for you to get poisoned from their saliva that has so much bacteria. That's a monster in a sense, but it's just trying to live its life and fill its belly like all of us do. And it's pretty remarkable. So something is in Lake Champlain that's doing sonar clicking. Something might be in the Loch Ness that um, explains what all these people have seen. And we're not talking about two or three sightings. I think, what did I see in 2000, 2020? There were 13 documented sightings. That doesn't count the ones that were never put on paper. Well, 13 is quite a few. And if you do 13, let's go low. Do 13 from the third century to now. That's a lot of sightings. And a lot of the people are not crazy. A lot of the people live on Loch Ness. They're not looking because they're a tourist hoping it'll be the day that they see it. Or on the webcams, which is a new way people are citing their sightings. In 2020, they had at least two really significant webcam sightings because of our new technologies. Um, something's there. And I hope it can be explained. It would be super neat if we finally figured out what it was, but we'll never beat the mystery out of the world. I mean, we wouldn't want to. Well, I was going to say, isn't that kind of what makes it fun? I mean, we're an outdoor podcast. And you know, one of the reasons why we're talking about the Loch Ness Monster is to inspire people to, to maybe when they're in Scotland to spend some time out there at Loch Ness looking for the Loch Ness Monster. Who knows? Maybe that will be the day they, maybe they get to see it. Who knows? Well, exactly. And it's not the, the beauty of looking for these creatures, whether it's me when I was a little girl growing up in Texas, I sat in the woods forever. That was my favorite place to be. And I learned to sit quietly. And if you sit quietly, that the animals come back. 
and you get to sit and watch them live their lives. You don't have to kill them. You don't have to catch them. You can just admire them. And that's what we want to instill in our kids, that these may be creatures, but they're not creatures we need to be afraid of. They're creatures we might even need to protect. Like I say, if Bigfoot is real and there's only 2,000 in North America, I hope we document that it's real so we can protect it. So people will stop thinking, I'm going to shoot a Bigfoot and be famous. Because if it turns out to be real, it's probably an intelligent being. I mean, there's some people say it's a hominid somewhere between human and ape. And that would be very rare and very precious. And killing it, it seems like a ridiculous thing. Well, and that's, you know, going back to the evolution discussion, right? How, how is there, we can't, can't just undeniably dispute that this isn't a primate stuck somewhere uh, below being human and, and an ape. I mean, it, it, what's, you know, we don't, we, we can't really say indisputably that there, there isn't some form of primate in between to just, I mean, there've been, look at all the hominids, look at all the prehistoric men mm-hmm. and whether you believe in creationism or you believe in science, I'm a science girl, but whatever you believe, either God evolved these creatures or he created them. And no matter which side of that, you know, consideration you're on, they deserve respect as a living creature. Mm-hmm. And the more we know, the less aggressive we have to be. Yeah. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent with that. We, we learn about other li- living beings. It helps us. We understand them and, and, and it can, for what we know, it can help us in our quest because, you know, we're, we're in trouble as, as, as a species. Oh, sure. Right. We just talked, we just recently, we were just talking about minutes ago, how, to, how the earth's going to eventually just get rid of us. So it, so we can keep going. Yeah. Um, so man, we, we need unless to we rid- unless we find a way. Now, my theory is that a lot of us won't make it, but some of us will, and we'll grow up being smarter, revolve into being a better co-planet environment. You know, to kind of share the world with a little more responsibility. That's my hope that that we continue, but we continue with more wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. But, you know, who wants to live in a world that's not magical? I, When I talk to kids, and I talk to kids a lot, I always tell them not to, you know, play your video games, stay inside, watch your movies. It's great, but don't forget to go outside, too. And when you go outside, you don't have to go far to find something remarkable. Just lift a rock. And if you lift up a big rock and you see an entire universe, an entire civilization living under that rock, then you start to realize that you're a part of a bigger planet, that you're part of something intricate and every single species has something important to do. And, you know, kids have to be, they have to respect, we have to respect their wonder. And these creatures are part of that wonder. So my dad didn't step on it for me, even though he was a hard science guy, he helped send the men to the moon. He wrote some of the programming to send Gemini and, and, and um, Mercury and Apollo he wrote the programming to help get men on the moon. He was a hard science guy, but he didn't say, don't be ridiculous. That's not real. He said, I guess we need more evidence. And that's the way to teach our kids to really start to wonder what might be possible. And that's possible under a rock. That's possible in the woods with Bigfoot. That's possible in Loch Ness, but that's possible in curing COVID or cancer or just 
living in a world that they can improve. My daughter wants to be an entomologist. Where did that come from? I don't know. I love bugs. She loves bugs. And I thought, if you're an entomologist, you got to develop poisons, and that wouldn't be a good job. And she said, Mom, if I'm an entomologist, I might be able to develop something that will save the bees. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think of it that way, but she had a broader perspective. And I thought, that's the point, is if we let our kids really think outside the box, if we let them expand and wonder, could this be real, without being ridiculed, then they're open to any possibility that the universe might hand over to them. And you don't know what's going to be possible. I mean, we didn't have airplanes until the early 19th century. All right. Tell somebody from the 1860s that one day somebody could take a, uh, a vehicle and fly it, put it up in the sky <laughs> and move people around. Right. No, they wouldn't have believed it. My grandmother saw my, my grandmother, I'm 63 years old, so I'm not a baby, but my grandmother saw the invention of the airplane and the automobile. It's not that long ago. And our kids need to be open to the possibilities, to the what if. Can I do this? Is this possible? And I think things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster help to inspire, help to spark that. Is this possible? And there's nothing a kid will research more hours than something intriguing like the Loch Ness Monster. They may not want to do their homework on the solar system because it's just been so dulled. But if you say, if they say, you know what, I love Bigfoot, I think Bigfoot might be real. And you say, well, let's do some research. Let's see what we can find. Then not only do they learn about Bigfoot, they learn about primatology. I know lots of people who have turned into primate experts who started with Bigfoot. And lots of paleontologists, dinosaur scientists who started with Godzilla. So these magical thinking elements, they lead to deeper and deeper research. They're not a negative. They're a positive. Well, yeah, we're teaching kids that uh, not seeing it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It means you just haven't found the answer, right? I've said that you know before in this interview, but right, teaching the kids to say, all right, let me look for more information. Let me dig deeper. And when we're doing that, are we preparing maybe that eight, nine-year-old to become an adult or to, to pursue a career where maybe they're saying, all right, there's not a cure for this disease right now, but I know we can find one. We just, we just have to keep looking. We have to do the science. Exactly. We have to do this. See, that's the thing. If kids have, I mean, they haven't learned yet to be downtrodden. I mean, some have because they've lived in homes where they weren't well treated, but Kids want to believe. They want to reach out beyond what exists to what might exist. And that's where all things come from. I mean, we have Velcro now because of NASA. We have all kinds of things. We think that we spend ridiculous amounts of money on these scientific experiments. And yet these experiments bring us um, personal computers and things that we can use. Everything that we invest eventually comes out. And I think that's true of the Loch Ness Monster too. I think the technologies that they test on something fanciful will also be of use in something practical. So these things are not bad things. These things are pretty remarkable. And they found Billy Wilder's Loch Ness Monster. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm a big Billy Wilder fan. Um, uh, me too. <laughs> as a matter of fact, uh, I just watched Fortune Cookie the other night for... That's a good one. Yeah. But, uh, you know, cryptozoology, I mean, people make fun of it, and I understand that. Crypto means mysterious, and zoology means animals. It's the study of mysterious animals. But 
I bet you at least 10% of these sightings will turn out to be real. If we just give them a chance. Mm-hmm. I mean, who says there's not a panther in Maine? Why not? Right. It could be. We might just not have the technology yet to find it. But... Maybe, like you said, or maybe there's just so few in number that we don't see them as often. Right. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll miss them. Right. But there might be some five or six-year-old kid who's so intrigued by that possibility that they grow up wanting to pursue a field or an interest to develop something that makes Plus, it possible. if you're really smart as a parent, if you're really smart and your kid says, I want to research Loch Ness Monster, not only are you going to go with them and help them do the research, take it seriously. Don't make fun of their interest. Take it seriously. Because then not only do you get to do the research with them, you get to teach them what a reliable source is. Yes. Oh, boy. Because is there something kids problem. need to learn? Oh, yeah. We have a problem with misinformation because nobody is teaching our kids how do you know if it's a reliable source. Now, you can take it as a parent. You can use any of these cool ghosts, aliens. You know, I wrote a book on aliens, and I wasn't a huge believer until I wrote the book. And I think we're being visited. I don't think that it's. I mean, and, and all the Department of Defense things that have recently been released, that's a reliable source, Department of Defense UFO video. Mm-hmm. Well, you as a parent, you as a guide, have the chance to teach your kids what a reliable source is and what a reliable source isn't. And you can go to the ones that aren't reliable and laugh at them. You can go and say, oh, my gosh, don't look at that. That's horrifying. Mm-hmm. But you, together with your children, you get to teach them how to do research using a topic that they're not hesitant to research. I tell kids all the time, you don't have to use research only for homework. It doesn't only have to be about the state bird or a governor. If you love black holes, you can look up black holes. You can do the research for fun. Mm -hmm. And they go, really? I mean, why are kids not understanding with this uh, internet? which opens the door to so much information, good and bad, that they can't use it for fun. Mm -hmm. And as a parent, if you teach them what's a reliable source, then they learn it. And all those skills that they learn looking up the Loch Ness Monster, then they know to use when it comes to political climates or medicines. That's where I was going next with this. You know, when we teach kids to sort out or understand what a reliable source is, we're teaching them critical thinking skills that can be applied in crucial. all parts of their lives. And there's a lot of adults that could use that. You know, I'm listening and I'm saying, yeah, there's adults that need to learn how to differentiate what's a credible source and what's not a credible source. Oh, there are lots of adults that need to do that. And it's funny because I do school visits or did before COVID. I did school visits all over the country. I traveled so much. It was crazy. And the reason I get so much work as a speaker in schools is because I use these topics to teach critical thinking. What evidence do we have? Do we believe this? Do we not believe this? What is the evidence? And you can use that in all of these high interest things. Pirates, for God's sakes. I mean, there's not a kid on the planet that doesn't love pirates. And if you do research on critical, um, appropriate source research on pirates, then you can't, or Loch Ness Monster, or Sea Monsters, or Bigfoot, you have to think about geography because Well, is Bigfoot only in North America? Let's find out. And you discover they're on every continent except Antarctica. Well, what are those continents? Where are their Bigfoots? Well, they're in the Himalayas. They're in, you know, uh, Australia has their own Bigfoot character. Suddenly you're learning about geography on top of 
Bigfoot. And then you're learning about, well, how big is it? I don't know. How big is eight feet tall? How big is 10 feet tall? Let's do the measurements. That's 10 feet tall. I had no idea. So suddenly you're doing math and calculations. How much does it weigh? Let's figure it out. And then you say, well, how much does a gorilla weigh? You have a door to make all of the disciplines of education from math to history to science to um, geography to social studies far more interesting because you're using a topic that they want to talk about. Well, you're making learning fun. And they're also understanding why they have to learn these things. You know, why do I have to learn how to do division? Well, you know, if you want to figure this out when we're seeking out information about Bigfoot, you're going to need to do these calculations. That's why you need, why do I need to know geography? Well, (laughs) but you're making it fun. Don't we? Yeah. Yeah. And if you start with that, then they learn that research can be remarkable. It can be, I mean, I love the research when I write a nonfiction book and I've written about World War II and I've written about the Titanic and I've written about all these subjects that I love. But the research is so much more fun than the writing. I'll do the writing because that's how I get it dispersed to people and the kids that I love. But the research is what makes me excited. And I find so much more information that will ever make it into the books. I'm a research junkie myself and whether oh, I'm taking a backpacking trip or a vacation or looking to, exactly. to write something. Yeah. I, I, it's like peeling an onion. I want, I want to find out what else is there. I'll just keep going. <laughs> well, exactly. What rock for, formations am I going to find when I go backpacking in the Sierras? Um, you know, my dad took me, I was a rock hound when I was a kid because my dad got me excited about rocks yeah. and excited about fossils and excited about dinosaurs and excited about life. And that's the thing. You may think that ghosts are stupid and maybe they are. And I wasn't sure about ghosts until I wrote a ghost book. And you know what I did to research the ghost books? Because you cannot prove they're real or fake. I went ghost hunting. Every time I went to a city for a school visit at night, I went to their paranormal teams. And I just watched. And I figured out based on my observations what was bunk and what wasn't. And I came away thinking maybe there are ghosts. Now, are they mean, terrifying creatures only in fiction? Because we love fiction. We love being scared. (laughs) But the actual evidence that I collected was pretty remarkable. My dad passed away in November. If my dad's still somewhere out there possibly able to communicate with me if I just pay attention, that's not scary. That's great, but you have to do the research. You have to really look into it. And that's true for Loch Ness Monster. That's true for Bigfoot. That's true. But parents can use these things. Here's the other thing. If you don't make your kid feel safe to ask you about Bigfoot, then they could get in trouble. Because remember Slender Man? Mm-hmm. Now, kids ask me all the time about Slender Man back in the day when it was big. Slender Man was fictitious. It was based on a story in a place called um, Creepy Pasta. It was a website where you can post all your creepy fiction. And Slenderman was so cool. They made a video game. Slenderman was a great, horrible character. But then all of a sudden, the kids started thinking it was real. And then two little girls lured their third friend into the woods in Wisconsin, and they tried to kill her because they thought they could live with Slenderman. Now, if they had felt safe in going to their teacher or their parents or the adult friend in their life and say, what the kid said to me is Slenderman real. And I heard it over and over and over again. And I was able to say, no, I've done the research. And it's fiction. It started out as fiction. It is fiction. It's great fiction, but it's not real. And if those little girls in Wisconsin had had someone to ask a Slenderman real that would not make fun of them, 
And they might not have lured that little girl in and hurt her in the woods. She survived. But kids need a safe place mm-hmm. to ask these questions. They believe Bloody Mary is real. They believe Bigfoot is real. They believe Loch Ness Monster is real. Now we need to help them to do the research to decide whether or not this real thing is dangerous or just interesting or not real at all. And that's what we do. We use these topics to help our kids figure out what might be true and what isn't. Yeah, I really love what I'm hearing here, Kelly, because I've had people on a talk and we talk about encouraging parents to get their kids into the outdoors. And you know, it sounds like with you, this all started because your dad got you outdoors early. Um, oh, yeah. He, he, he supported your, your love of the outdoors. Well, he allowed me to see, I grew up in Texas a long, long time ago, but it was very rural in the community outside of Houston where I lived and it was all woods. There were some neighborhoods, but he would say, okay, go out and play. I'll whistle when it's time for dinner. And I just lived in the woods. It was the best possible place where there were lizards and snakes. Every venomous snake in North America was in Houston, but they taught me when I was five, they gave me a reptile book and circled the venomous snakes said, don't touch these. No one would do that today, but it worked. I didn't Mm -hmm. touch those unless it was an accident. And then I was lucky, Mm -hmm. but I lived in the woods because it was the most magical place that I've ever seen. And the little lizards were great. And the little skinks and even the venomous snakes were fantastic bats. I found baby bats once Mm -hmm. I did the research. You're supposed to leave them on the ground. All these things because my world was accessible to me and because my parents said, okay, let's look it up. Let's see what's there. And it, we didn't have the internet when I was a kid, but we did have the library. So my dad would take me to the library and we'd look it up. Yeah, I just, well, now we and it makes me think my, my oldest son went through a situation uh, and he's in his thirties now. So this is before everybody had a computer in their house and I was at work. My wife was at home and he picked up a mushroom. He was, I think, eight at the time. And she was like, well, he's got to learn about this. This could be dangerous. So she brought him to the library and had him do some research and write a report on mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. And and now he's kind of gotten, he's grown to have a fascination where he's taking classes and is certified mycologist. But uh, he always looks back at that as like, you know, wow, you know, mom didn't just say put that down. That could be dangerous or poisonous. She made me learn about mushrooms. Exactly. She opened the door to research, which is just a great thing to do for your kids. All right, Kelly, uh, you know, you give us a lot of great information on the Loch Ness Monster. And then beyond that, with just some really good reasons why we should be doing everything we can to encourage kids to go outdoors, be inquisitive, uh, answer their questions, right? If they come to you and say, is there such a thing as ghosts or are there aliens or is there a Loch Ness Monster? Don't poo-poo it. Don't give them the quick answer so they go away. Take some time. Take them over to the computer and teach them. Get them on the road to learning how to do some effective research and learn some critical thinking skills. And you know what? If you do that with your kids when they're 8 or 9 or 10, you know what's going to happen when they're 15 and somebody wants them to do a drug? They're going to know they can come to you and ask you, hey, is this safe? And you're going to say, let's do the research. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Yep. Those, those kids are the ones that are likely to go to their parents and ask the questions. 
And if you ever get to go to Scotland, let me know if you see the Loch Ness Monster. It's on the bucket list. And yes, I will definitely go to Loch Ness. Uh, I've got two hiking trails I'm looking at over there. And uh, I I have some of my ancestries from Scotland. So yes, it's Scotland, Ireland are on the short list of places that, that my wife and I are going to visit. And I will definitely let you know, or maybe even Wait. just send you some beautiful pictures of the area. Uh, with or without don't tell anyone else just tell me i'll go to you first it'll be our secret it's like my friends with my bigfoot friends i told them the same thing you know i'll I'll go to you guys first if i if i find uh, find bigfoot and let them know Uh, well thanks so much it's been fun that's uh kelly it's been a great it's been great talking to you uh you have a website would you like to tell us about your website i do my website is the wonders of weird because i tell kids i get paid for being weird and I do. Being weird is fun. So it's the wondersofweird.com. You can see all my books and all the things that I work on. And my email address is there. If anybody has any questions on helping their kids with research, I'm on your team. Kelly, we will put a uh, link to your website in the description for the podcast and encourage everybody to go over there and check it out. Once again, thank you, Kelly uh, Milner, for coming on Papa Bear's H- Hikes. Um, Everybody, make sure you go to papabearhikes.com. Check out what we have going on over there. Everybody go out. Be safe. And hey, if you're around Loch Ness, be extra safe just in case Nessie shows her shows her face. <laughs> <laughs> This episode of Pop Bear Hikes has been brought to you by Avalon Publicity. Avalon Publicity, increasing the digital footprint of content creators and skilled professionals via website development and social media services. For more information about Avalon Publicity, go to their website, avalonbusiness.org. That's avalonbusiness.org.